What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. With the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday, and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. What is up, folks? This is episode 104 of the Emulsion Podcast. First, I want to start off by thanking a couple of amazing folks who are new to the Patreon fam. And this is the place where you get a shout out. This is also... I mean, a pretty intensely supportive way to make sure that the full video episodes can still exist. Uh, Everybody's time that goes into creating these episodes is possible. And this month, I have Michael M. and Chris S. to thank as new patrons here on the community. I do a bunch of behind-the-scenes content for everybody that's in that special tier and above on Patreon, and then every, just in general, if you decide to be even on the lowest tier of this show, you get a shout-out here on the show. And something that is also kind of cool that doesn't often, often uh, get touted as a unique feature that even other people on Patreon that are creators I see do- not doing is the little creator badge as a commenter on YouTube. So if you're someone who does support me on Patreon and you would like to do that weird flex on YouTube. If you do comment on any of my content, it will show that you're a patron, uh, which I think is kind of cool. So let's get right into the news, shall we? The first article I want to talk about today is that shocking news that the New York Times kind of posted about and everybody else ran with it. 11 Madison Park's owners are splitting up. So for everybody that doesn't know, Daniel Hume and Will Gadara, the duo who kind of launched this brand into into the stratosphere is quote unquote ending their partnership. And so the most important thing that got profiled is or at least when I heard about it was the fact that the what did they say here? quote Although some top staff members of the group had known about the pending breakup for weeks, most of the staff of about a thousand people found out today in an email. And one of my dear friends who works at Eleven Madison Park just blindsided and to hear that you know your boss and your both of your bosses who are you know kind of leading the ship the the duo captain setup of the of the organization aren't going to be working together in that capacity anymore is kind of crazy and so the story behind it is quote with the help of an from an investor Mr. Whom is buying out Mr. Gadara's share of the business end quote and what Mr. Gudara plans to do with that money is to open his own restaurant group. So that's also going to be really interesting to see where that goes because Will Gudara is not a chef. He is known for his front of house presence. And so to see which chef he decides to pair up with is going to be also very interesting to see. So I would be curious to hear if any of you either work at a made nice restaurant or are in 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 the insider position to know kind of what's happening and want to kind of let us know how the developments have been since this news has dropped. I would love to know your thoughts either down low in the comments or please tweet at me. Um, the, the, the article from New York Times goes into a lot of really great depths as far as talking about the origin story of how the partnership came to be, 
obviously the Danny Meyer influence on the whole thing has been interesting, uh, how they've revamped, um, 11 Madison park and made it, made it into the Titan that it is. One thing that I didn't even know was a thing is did, did you guys know that Will Gadara and Christina Tosi are married? Did anybody know that? I was uh, very taken aback when it says Mr. Gadara married Christina Tosi, founder of the Milk Bar chain in 2016. I didn't hear about that. Maybe some of you knew about that, but I, I certainly did not hear about it. But yeah, it was, it was definitely, it had its place in the Twitter sphere uh, when that news dropped. And I, I'm just surprised that the staff was blindsided in that way. I was, I remember when the Chicago Tribune piece about Curtis Duffy and his parents came out, we were told in the locker room the day before, and Michael Muser came in and said, hey, you guys might see an article come out tomorrow that might shock a few of you. So I just want to kind of give you guys a heads up about this. I think it's just kind of interesting when, and this isn't me saying this, this is a couple other people that have told me, say, well, these organizations that say they care so much about their teams, and then they, like I said, blindside them in this way. And I understand that you have public perception to be worried about, and you you want to have it under wraps from a PR perspective so people don't run with this information, or people don't quit and leave the restaurant high and dry when things get even probably busier when you think that 11 Madison Park is going to close. I don't, I don't know. So that's been interesting to hear and watch kind of from a distance. I have never worked at a Daniel Hume, Will Gadara place or even a Union Square Hospitality Group place, to be honest. But I, I, I just I don't think anybody saw this coming. So definitely let me know your thoughts uh, if you have anything to share on this news. I think what's going to be more interesting is to see what Daniel Hume does alone they do say something in here let me try to find this jeffrey tascarella is going to be the chief operating officer of 11 madison park or i think from the whole entire restaurant group um yeah it talks about their up and downs it's it's a really good piece if you need a little bit of history from them but yeah we'll see We'll, we'll we'll have to wait and see what happens i think this is definitely what is, what is the final point from Danny Meyer's say down at the bottom here? It says, quote, on the other hand, I hope we will now get to see an amazing next solo chapter for each of them. It certainly happened for Lennon and McCartney, end quote, a la the Beatles. I didn't talk about today's beverages today. I took a day off coffee yesterday, and so I had a horrible headaches and nausea yesterday. I was not feeling great, um, but someone got Anna a Chemex for her birthday, and so I made Joe and I a Chemex today. How was it? It's good, yeah. I mean, normally it's normally it's Aeropress in my life, but I, I I just nerd out. It's a it's a great coffee ritual to have Chemex happen. The next purchase is going to be a burr grinder because I'm told that that's the way to like really get it consistent on your Chemex. Ethiopian Sumo Quito is the name of the coffee that is in this one. Then a lime Lacroix because I've just been drinking too much today to get myself back on track. Uh, so good, so good. All right, moving on. Eater published uh, their list of best new restaurants of 2019. I'm trying to look for the date on this, but I'm just going to read you off the the selections, the places that they deemed uh, really, really good. This is from Hillary Dixler Canavan, which is Eater's restaurant editor. Ada, Adamix, which I'm super pissed that I haven't been to yet. The Baker's Table, Call Your Mother, Erizo, Erizo. I hope I'm saying that right. 
Fox and the Knife, Indigo, The Jerk Shack, Cow Noodle Shop, Kopitiam, which I actually had the pleasure of going to with Abe from Eating Tools, which is an amazing meal. We had breakfast there. It was really, really tasty. Marrow in Detroit, Moosey, Nightshade, Tacos 1986 in LA, Verjou in San Francisco, and Virtue in Chicago. And this is a list of them all alphabetically so that there is no technically number one restaurant, but it's just kind of a, a cool profile on each place. It's a what, a why, and a little bit of a blurb from one of the editors that had the pleasure of eating at one of these places. So congrats if you work at one of these places that's getting a little bit of recognition. As per usual, uh, I just hope that I get to eat at some of these places if I go to the city. So like Adamix is just impossible to get into from (laughs) everything that I've been trying to do every single time I go to New York. I will be there again in mid-September, so I hope to I just make a reservation now. I'm not going to make it live here on the show, but I'm flagging that I need to make a reservation at Adamix because it's super, super high on the list. Even Attaboy, but I'm told Attaboy is better if you go with someone so you can share a couple different plates. But, um... Yeah, I, I, I use Eater a lot when I go out to eat, and so I'm happy to see some of these places get some get some recognition. Moving on, a friend of the show, Amanda Young, who is also launching an, her own media ventures, has been sending me some really awesome podcasts, and one of the ones that I saw and wanted to kind of put on your folks' radar is from All Things Considered, and the title of it is, Is the Food Renaissance About to End?, and it's from um, Michael Martin interviewed this guy named Kevin Alexander because Alexander wrote a book called Burn the Ice. And the subtitle of that book is The American Culinary Revolution and Its End, end quote. And it just talks, I'm, I'm going to read, uh, read you a little back and forth from these two to kind of give you a taste of kind of what this interview uh, talks about. So Martin asks, well, let's start with the good times. How did this restaurant boom begin? And when did you realize this was a trend? And then Kevin Alexander, who's the author of this book, says, yeah, so I've been covering food for 11 years and really in the last three years as I've been traveling around the country. I down to 40 cities, and I just sort of saw the same types of restaurants everywhere. You know, it was the Edison bulbs and the reclaimed wood and the farm-to-table food and a craft cocktail program. And it just seemed like there was this nationwide osmosis where everyone needed to include mezcal and meatballs on their menus, and everyone suddenly cared where their food was coming from. And all these independent restaurants that were chef-owned seemed to define the era. So what I wanted to do was trace that back. And when I did, I found that Patient Zero seemed to be Portland in 2006. End quote. And so that kind of gives you a little bit of a sense of what this episode is about. I personally haven't listened to it yet, but it's in my queue. I took a little bit of time when I was just cooking a lot and I was <laughs> driving a lot and I didn't have a lot of time when I was I was in the car with someone else who I didn't feel like was cohesive to listening to my podcast queue, which is a lot of, you know, Tim Ferriss and Matt Diavella and Joe Rogan. And so I'm very, very behind in my podcast queue. And so this is in the queue. It's only an eight-minute episode. And so I think that it, it it will make it its way into my ears soon enough. I don't know if I'm going to buy this book. I think that I cover a lot of stories on this show enough where I don't really need to get somebody else's opinion on food because everybody's is different. But I think from a histor- historical snapshot perspective, this is a really good way for some of you to kind of get a basis of where is the industry right now. I think we've been covering news stories on the show 
enough to people saying that the bubble is going to burst and trendy restaurants are are over and we aren't going to see it's a death of fine dining. We've covered that numerous times, and yet we still continue to see people going out and experiencing food in in own in their own unique ways. And so, to see this kind of content get put out there, I don't think it's the last time we're going to see this, but I think it's 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 great to see people having conversations about it. And so, if any of you have listened to this and have your thoughts, I'd love to hear what you think about where the industry is at right now. That kind of links up to another interesting Eater article that I saw, and it was flagged under trends, and Nick Mankal Beetel was the freelance writer who wrote it, and it's called The Californication of America's Restaurants, subtitled How Designers and Restaurateurs Are Emulating Those Sunny Los Angeles Vibes Indoors, end quote. And this is only super top of mind because I went to this place in Seattle last night called Homer, and I very much so got... LA vibe. So they have a pita's section of the menu, which is very conducive of what I experienced at Major Domo. Whether or not Major Domo is the originator of that idea, I don't necessarily think so, but I definitely got like small plates of vegetables, uh, whole half roasted chicken with a paste of fruits and chilies, uh, pork shoulder cuts. There was two wood fire kind of selections one was kind of a larger oven and then the other one was kind of like uh the hearth setup that you uh, so many of us have seen in restaurants that are popping up all over the place and this just does a really great breakdown of kind of where we're at right now where everybody wants to kind of emulate what's going on in California. So it says, quote, but even without a clear definition of the food on the plate, diners then and now harbor an image of California dining. The concept conjures a place more than a flavor. The table on the patio or by the pool surrounded by desert plants and minor celebrities, a glass of wine glinting in the ceaseless sunshine, and increasingly restaurants both in the state and elsewhere design their spaces to evoke this scene. It talks about some designers that are keeping some of this kind of top of mind, some great photos of, you know, places where the identity is 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 shrouded, right? You can't show me a photo of a place and tell me that it's in Kentucky or Detroit or Southern California, right? It could be anywhere, effectively. And so, uh, give some get some opinions from some people who are in Venice, talking about Southern California style, LA designs from the '40s and '50s. Like I said, different designers. Of course, it goes into the food as well. I just think it's an interesting segue. And again, a little snapshot. That doesn't really look like LA. It's a place called Kismet in Los Angeles. I haven't seen that quite yet. Let's see. Quote, restaurateurs have successfully channeled California ideals into unique, thoughtful restaurants in and out of the state, but it requires serious effort to not fall back on stereotypes. Over the last few years, California, and not just LA, has begun to set, has begun to set the national culinary tone. Los Angeles is influential in a way that it has not been since the 1980s, with Japanese, Mexican, French, and Middle Eastern and Italian restaurants all gaining due recognition for their impact on dining trends there and across the country. The city and state are poised to establish new, a lasting legacy as one of America's culinary destinations. California-style restaurants can help or hurt that effort not only in the ways that they represent California in their food, but how they present it in their dining rooms. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. It's, it, it's, it's only super top of mind because if you would have told me that I was in L.A. last night when I was sitting there drinking a glass of natural wine, eating charred beans on a bed of, what was it, fennel and nigella seeds, and then another dish of like kohlrabi with fermented blueberries, 
and a pita of lamb on tahini. It just it could have been L.A. It could have been Jelena that I was eating at. It, it, the identity was so funny, but I was also super grateful that that a place like that exists in Seattle because. I love eating like that, and I love that kind of food and that kind of dining experience, sitting at a counter where like, you can feel the heat from the wood fire. It was great. It was a really good experience. I'm almost upset that I didn't shoot a TPC episode about it because I would have loved to have had that on camera to share that. I saw the photo for this article, which Adam Platt did, uh, which was a review of Mason Yaki, and it was effectively every single thing that I ordered from that restaurant. I think there's maybe two things in this photo that I didn't order, but I had the pleasure of going with my friend Brent Herrig, who I've had on the podcast before. Shout out to everybody who's heard that interview. And I just wanted to gen- genuinely see what Adam Platt had to say about it. So the subtitle to this is Izakaya en Francais. At Mason Yaki, the skewers are Japanese, the sauces are French, and the portions are tiny, and then in parentheses, but filling, end quote. And so, yeah, I, I genuinely had all of these. It's the frog legs, it's the beef, it's the pork belly, it's the, what dish was that? don't remember. The katsu sandwich, or the, is that a katsu sandwich? I don't remember. The meatballs with the egg yolk, the baguette. It's great. So great. And let's see. Quote, or you can do what Backstrom does with his eager, eagerly awaited follow-up, Mason Yaki, and cherry-pick elements of these different time-worn, time-worn options to create an antique mashup genre all your own. The bar restaurant, which opened a couple of months ago in a narrow space across from Olmsted, is being billed for local regulars as a kind of Japanese-style gastropub, albeit one with a French-accented menu with its own ready-made fast-casual logo on top, a chicken wearing a beret, for the record. The waitstaff are dressed in striped, black and white outfits like servers at some random tourist restaurant on the Côte d'Azur. The specialty of the house is that old Japanese fast casual standby yakitori grilled on bamboo sticks and nothing on the napkin size fold-up menu, which is neatly affixed to a pair of red plastic chopsticks, costs over 10 bucks. So I think it's just, it's the photo of where I sat in the dining room in this article. And he has great things to say. I think that with the price point being where it's at, and the way that the services is is set up, the cocktails are all batched, which I thought was also really interesting. They aren't, you know, shaking cocktails to order. It's not a massive bar. There's usually one, maybe two max people behind that bar. And it just makes for a fast service where they can do more covers in the space as opposed to encouraging people to sit for an hour and a half at a time. I would say most people probably spend 45 minutes at Mason Yaki. I obviously sat a little bit longer because I wanted to hang out and chat with Brent and, you know, we wanted to, yes, beef tongue sandwich. That's exactly what that dish is as I'm scrolling through this article. So for those of you that don't remember, Grub Street does their ratings on a point system based out of 100. So this was given 82 out of 100, which is a quote unquote good rating. Uh... Adam Platt describes his ideal meal as escargot or frog legs, beef tongue sando, salmon tartare, an assortment of skewers including duck all orange, lobster, lamb, chicken wing, pork belly, and spring leeks, and then for dessert, the profiteroles with ginger and matcha, which we all had, which was great. And so what does he say? On the note, note, the bar serves only batch cocktails, but you can get slightly more diverse selection of moderately priced wines. Gives a couple of suggestions to go with your skewers. I thought it was great. I really, really had a great meal there. 
I didn't really have any complaints on anything because it's such a great standalone dining experience. There's a patonk field in the back. The patio is great. The vibe is just, you feel like you're in a small, quaint, cozy space. It doesn't feel jam-packed like you're in a trendy spot in Manhattan. It just, I was genuinely excited to see this review. And even though, yeah, I can agree that if you order a skewer, a, a, a duo of skewers for $9 and you only get two skewers between the two of you, it might seem kind of like a tiny portion, but I think we got out of there for... We got a few things hooked up with from Greg, but it was, I want to say, 80 bucks for the two of us. We both had two drinks, and we ordered almost the entire menu. Got a few things on the house, like I said. No complaints. I would totally go back. I plan on going back when I'm back in New York. Great, great, great review. A piece of news I was excited to see. David Chang is getting a new show on Netflix, and I think there's two shows, actually. According to The Hollywood Reporter, Chang has recently finished shooting the second season of his hit show, Ugly Delicious, which will premiere later this year. Additionally, Netflix will capitalize on Chang's success as an interviewer on his podcast, The David Chang Show, by giving him a second show dubbed Breakfast, Lunch, and Dinner, where the Momofuku founder will visit different cities with celebrity guests, eating three meals over one day, end quote. That's kind of like, uh, what is that Jerry Seinfeld show? Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? It's very similar where, you know what, what show that makes me think of is there was a show I used to watch on the Food Network where Rachel Ray would travel to a city and eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I think it was $50 a day. Maybe it was $20 a day. No, it was definitely $50 a day. I don't remember what the price point was, but it was just fascinating to see how she would navigate a new city. And this was back when I was... 12 13 14 15 years old and i didn't have the where i I didn't have the capacity to travel by myself but i would live vicariously through seeing how this woman who was so passionate about food would save her money for dinner by going to a market in the morning and trying different free samples and that would be her breakfast she'd be like look you can get cheese for free and ask the pastry shop for a sample of their bread and then buy a really cheap piece of charcuterie and that could be your breakfast and then you can get the street food for lunch and then you can go all out and get this great french bistro with a glass of wine for dinner and i hopefully think oh what does this say outside the next outside the netflix sphere the 41 year old chef is developing a show for hulu alongside model turned cookbook author chrissy teigen called family style as part of a multi-layer deal with the streaming platform it's very interesting I'm curious how this is going to be structured with his company, Major Domo Media. Because is he going to keep all the rights to this? Why is he not just publishing it all in-house? I mean, I understand why you would want to partner with a Hulu or a Netflix. But is David Chang getting 100% of this? Or is he feeding it through Major Domo to see if... That would be an interesting conversation I would like to have because it seemed like when he launched Major Domo, he was planning on keeping it all in, in-house and producing all this stuff himself. But then if he's going to have Netflix produce it or does Major Domo produce it and then he sells the show to Netflix, that would be smart because then he gets to keep more of the upside. It'd be interesting to have that conversation with David Chang or one of his producers 
have them on the show sometime. That would be very, very interesting. I'm just I'm just excited for Ugly Delicious. I know it got a lot of flack and a lot of people didn't enjoy how it got kind of political at certain points in time. But I, I, I enjoyed it. I think that he is unapologetic in how he's doing a lot of his stuff. And I've said it before on the show, but I think that he's going to go down as one of the guys who was fearless and that is going to put him in all-time status, I think, because he was not afraid to do media and have restaurants in the way that a lot of chefs think that it has to be one or the other. You have to be either a TV chef or a restaurant chef, and he's doing both, which I think is exciting. More media stuff, more TV stuff in something I didn't see happening so fast. Kwame Onuachi, the guy who we talked about and I got a little bit of controversial Twitter action from doing coverage on his memoir. This memoir is being adapted into a movie. So the memoir notes from a young black chef is getting turned into a movie. Quote, uh, well, hang on. So A24 is going to be funding the entire project. They've also done The Last Black Man in San Francisco, Midsommar, The Farewell, So they've done a lot of really high-hitting films. And it says, quote, Stanfield will be producing along with Stephen Dr. Love and Colin Stark and rising screenwriting star Randy McKinnon will adapt the book. I guess the gentleman playing Kwame is Lakeith Stanfield. So he's going to be producing as well. It's very interesting. Producing and starring as Kwame. It'll be interesting to see because everything is so fresh in Kwame's mind, it'll be interesting to see how they adapt it for film because sometimes you need to Hollywoodize it, but I, I think because it's such a small story, like you're not trying to have it be a Brad Pitt burnt style movie, not Brad Pitt, Bradley Cooper, you don't want it to be too Hollywoodized. You want it to be a little bit more emotional and intense. So we'll see how that movie goes. I really enjoyed... The Flynn documentary. I watched that on the plane a little while ago, and I really enjoyed that documentary about Flynn McGarry. But yeah, I'll, I'll I'll watch this. I'm curious to see what the kitchen they decide to do in, because per se is not going to let them shoot in there. I'm 99% positive. I would be very surprised if per se let them shoot scenes in per se. So we'll have to see what kitchen they decide to shoot some of those scenes in, because that has to be part of it, right? Like, that's one of the biggest headline moments, and when he talks about feeling the most amount of racism and abuse, was that per se? Very curious to see what happens there. But yeah, it's getting made into a movie, FYI. For those of you that have been questioning what you can expect from a stage and why you should stage and what the benefits and pros and cons are to staging, there was a long-form piece written by Samuel Ashworth on Eater, And the title is Super Sad True Chef Story. Quote, The French Brigade system and the ritual of staging has defined what it means to train as a fine dining chef for more than a century, and it broke me after a week. End quote. Ooh, I'm intrigued. So it's this writer who goes to France, and he, long story short, just gets super burnt out working for this chef, and he actually switches restaurants partway through this story, which is very interesting. But it is a long-term story, long-form story where he talks about the reasons why people would like to stage, places where you can do it, why 
French cuisine is looked at and regarded in the way that it's regarded. I'm going to read you the last paragraph here. Quote, still, I'm glad I did it, if for no other reason than now, when I'm really floored by a meal or, say, just by a truly silky piece of fish, I know not to send my compliments to the chef. Instead, I tell the server to thank the person in the back of the kitchen who spent hours this morning extracting every last grippy little pin bone from that filet, who plucked each individual leaf of parsley from its stem, who hour after hour, night after night, stood there, feet planted, back aching, grinding fish carcasses into stock and scouring potatoes, waiting for a shot at something more. End quote. Quote, for a hundred years, the traditional French approach of break you or make you was simple, blunt solution. But like most simple, blunt solutions, it was a lousy one. What it really meant was that like every elite kitchen was full of young cooks fighting like a school of hungry carp, clambering over one another and scrambling for a breadcrumb dropped from the hand of a chef. Worse, the system also systematically weeded out women and anyone else who didn't fit the mold, meaning that for decades, one couldn't find a high-profile chef in France who wasn't a straight white male. Of the 26 restaurants in France with three Michelin stars, only one has a female chef, Anne-Sophie Peak of Maison Peak. When chefs screamed or threw crockery, it was dismissed or even celebrated as quote-unquote passion, and casual nastiness and degradation were thought uh, to be part of the job. Abusers weren't just protected, they were given TV shows, end quote. So it definitely goes into some larger issues here. Talks about how, you know, you're... Some people would actually pay to stage where, you know, some some of these people were working for free, but then the cost of the menu was ultra high. It's just very interesting introduction into staging, especially overseas, if those of you are interested in going overseas and maybe you think that, you know, well, maybe it's the way that I want to get my ass kicked and the way that I want to kind of, like like the article talks about, getting broken down to then get rebuilt back up. Maybe you read something like this and it totally dissuades you from going into staging. I just don't feel like, I don't know, I just, in the, in the same way that basic training helps the army dogs get to a level of discipline and understanding of what it takes to kind of put up with some of these things, I don't think that it's a bad experience to have, especially if, I mean, if you're going to ring yourself dry and completely get burnt out and start having mental health problems, I don't think that's something that I would recommend anyone to do, but it definitely made me a stronger chef. And so I think that if anybody's interested in getting a little bit of insight, it's a great long form piece. I don't think it talks about anything that's wrong or inaccurate. I think that it's great to have him admit that it broke him and that it was very intense and not all, it it wasn't puppies and rainbows. I don't think that I think anything that I could say that says the other says something the other way is not right. I mean, it comes to mind one of you coaching clients actually had a great stage experience where the first day was pretty intense and then there was two days where you really felt like you were part of the team. And then on the last day the chef asked you to go sit down and have a meal at the restaurant on them. So for every story of abuse and getting your feelings hurt and getting broken down, I think there's just as many stories of camaraderie and feeling like you are part of the organization. And when you didn't have the skills or the resume to get you a job just because you were able to come to them with your time and work for free, this gives you a wealth of opportunities down the road 
or even a network that pays off dividends because you spend time with these people who went on to own restaurants that were at the top of the game later on. So I think that's just very, very interesting to see it broken down in this way. There's another great article. I mean, great-ish. It's from uh, it's a result of the Eater Young Guns Summit, which I was very upset that I couldn't make to. I was one week behind making it to this conference in New York. Another Hillary Dixler Canavan piece, and it's five steps restaurants and diners can take right now to make the industry better. And the subtext is, quote, in a lot of ways, the restaurant business is broken. Pros Martha Hoover and Davida Davison on how to actually fix it. So I'm going to read them here real quick. And if you want to dive a little bit deeper, the article is always linked up in the show notes or on justincana.com. So step one, operators need to think beyond just getting the best out of their employees. That's interesting. Two, normalize fair conditions and equitable corporate structures. Interesting. Three, start by building the work working culture you want from day one. I 100% believe in that one. Four, consumer culture around pricing must change. Interesting. It's from the same company that employs a guy named Ryan Sutton. Step five, consumers must keep going to restaurants and ask more questions. See if there's any juicy quotes to be pulled out of this. So Davida Davidson is the executive director of Detroit's Food Lab, an organization devoted to supporting and promoting local food businesses. And in that normalizing fair conditions and equitable corporate structures, she says, we try, what we try to do at the early stage is normalize what the restaurant or the food retailer of the future is going to look like. We want to normalize what we want to see in the future so there's no baggage or idea of this system we're trying to dismantle. We're trying to teach our way forward. We ask our members that they commit to this methodology called the triple bottom line of accounting. And that means that you're not only paying attention to the P of profit, but you're paying attention to the P in people and the P in planet. So we call it the three P's. It's a good thing that this mo- this mic has a little pop filter on it. That would have been abuse for your ears. Sorry, podcast folks. Anyways, having a profitable business means that you have a profitable business model. I would agree with most of these things. I don't, the thing, the thing that was interesting with me is that most restaurants don't start off knowing that they want to be corporate. I feel like a lot of, it's an ebb and flow, right? If you come from a French laundry style setup where it's a structured restaurant group and there's a million and a half resources and you get frustrated that you aren't able to get ideas put into place because there's xyz gatekeepers in the way of the speed of your creativity sometimes you'll default to going the other way and you want to be a scrappy one door kind of shop you don't want to have a chain of restaurants you want to have your one little boutique atelier you know that you cook out of and you know every single employee's name, and you want it to be small. And so I think there's kind of a critical point in a business where you start to think corporate because the structure is required to keep the wheels spinning. Because if it was scrappy and you had 75 employees, that would be a little bit of a difficult ship to run. And so I understand that. I understand wanting to have corporate structure in place, but I think that it doesn't work for everyone. I think that some people look at corporate structure and 
it makes them gag. I think that they certain people want to have a little bit more hands-on with everything, and they don't want it to be systemized in every single way. There's a great book that I would recommend everybody that wants to start their own thing, and it's called The E-Myth Revisited. And it's a great way to think about being an entrepreneur versus a manager. And I suggested it to one of my friends the other day, and I hope that she read it because it was really, really good for me to see the difference between the pros of having a systemized business versus having one that just flies by the seat of its pants. Where you And the great part about it is the author uses the analogy of a pie business which for us food people is a great way to think about structuring. But he uses that because it is conducive to getting people to think about the process of making something, their widget, whatever whatever their business is. I did want to dive a little bit into this quote, though. Operators need to think beyond just getting the best out of their employees. Martha Hoover says, quote, In my company, we truly believe that we need to enrich employees' lives. It's more than just offering benefits, more than just offering a beyond-livable wage, which we do. It's giving support to life, to information that allows people to understand the power that they bring to the table. When you talk about empowering people, it always indicates that I'm giving up some of my power to somebody. I always like to remind people, at least when they're within our four walls, they come in with a lot of power and knowledge. Hmm. I guess I understand that. We have a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year employee assistance plan that offers free legal, free psychological, drug, and alcohol testing and counseling. Things like that show people that we care about you, not just when you're engaged at work. We care about you as a whole person. Be interested to see how... What was his name? Follow him on Twitter. He had a whole program talking about that. Do any of you folks have organizations that come in at your restaurant and do something like that? Whether it's like a employee assistance program or something that you've taken advantage of recently that's been like, whoa, I'm really glad that my company does this. Because I'm always concerned with how something looks like getting on your high horse and talking about and how something gets received by an actual employee in a restaurant. If you've taken advantage of something like that and you have really found some benefit into it, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on how that's gone for you. Because it certainly didn't exist when I was coming up. I mean, we had 401k options and insurance, but not access to therapy. So I'm all about it. I'm all about these conversations happening. I just think changing consumer psychology is difficult. And what we want in our moral obligations and what ultimately gets translated into what happens in the market can often be different. Quote, you have to be very cognizant of where you spend your dollar. When you do spend your dollar at these places, you have to be very cognizant of what they look like. These are things you can't be do- you can be doing on a daily basis. End quote. Really sad I missed that whole panel. I would love, although listening to panels like this definitely gets me excited about having certain people like this on the podcast because I really don't shy away from getting into the nitty gritty with some of these things, with some of these people. I think that will do it for my industry stories that I wanted to cover this week. We should do a little bit of a creep through on what I'm interested in chatting through for non-industry stories. You know, I hate to keep it on the Pokemon Go train, which is what I talked about in my last thing, but I've gone even deeper down the rabbit hole, and I'm actually really obsessed 
with this guy who runs a YouTube channel called Trainer Tips. His name is Nick, and I recently started supporting him on Patreon because I love his videos so much. It's just, I'm obsessed every single time he publishes a video because he's a travel adventure YouTuber who also just happens to play Pokemon Go. And it's just fascinating that uh, it's someone who is telling his story of how he goes through his life. He has a van that he travels around, a trailer that he takes across the U.S. He can just get up and go to Japan, goes to Canada, goes to Germany, plays Pokemon. But, like, he meets people and eats food and lives his life in the same way that someone, one of his comments in his show recently was, uh, in the same way that Top Gear showed you about the world without being 100% about cars, it's just cars was the vehicle through telling these stories. I think it's just a fantastic YouTube channel. And I recently started supporting him on Patreon. So the two people that I support on Patreon now are Matt Diavella, who I love, and Nick, who runs a channel called Trainer Tips. So if you're into that kind of stuff, travel YouTubing, getting a break from the normal everyday life that is cooking and working in restaurants, I highly recommend his channel. So... I think if you, let's see, there was a one comment that I did want to go through on direct answer. I'm doing a little bit of a restructuring of the show here. It doesn't normally go in this direction or this format. Let's see, where was the question that I wanted to answer? Okay, so this is actually in response to the intermezzo that I just published about my per se externship manual, and Joshua Thompson has a couple of questions as follow-up stuff to this episode. So He says, as an incoming freshman to the CIA, the externship is kind of covered in mystery. He says, he has a couple questions. How did you decide on per se? Have you worked at NOMA and would it make a good externship site? And what's some advice on how to thrive in a three-star environment if you haven't been in that level of kitchen before? So let's start from the top. How did I decide on per se? I joke around a lot that per se was my plan B restaurant. Alinea was actually my number one choice. And I went to Alinea... I had a two-day stage. On the second day, I cut my finger pretty bad, and it didn't look great on the sous chefs that were kind of judging me for my time there. And I really wanted it as an externship site. Ship site? Externship. That's great. Uh, But I remember the first moment interaction that I had when I walked into the restaurant, someone said, don't talk to me. That was the first interaction I had with anyone in Alinea, and it was not a great experience. And so cutting my finger and not performing great, coupled with the fact that I just didn't really feel good being in Alinea, it didn't result in me doing my externship there. And so because I was so hell-bent set on Alinea being the place, I thought I was SOL. I was like, where am I going to go now? And per se was on my list to stage, and thank goodness I staged and the timing worked out and my dates were good. And I enjoyed my time there. And so that ultimately ended up being my decision. I wanted a three-star Michelin restaurant. I didn't have that much romantic attachment. I thought that if I was going to work for Thomas Keller, I was going to work at French Laundry. And I had it in my head that why go to where Grant Ackett's had worked and done all of his training if I could just go to the source? I thought Grant Ackett's was the source. Why go to where he did his training if I could learn under the next generation? Does that make sense? So that's why I had much more interest in going to Alinea rather than per se. Uh, 
So I hope that answers that question. How did I decide on per se? Changed my career for sure. Definitely recommend it if anybody wants a good place to go that's very structured, especially under Corey Chow now. It's a great place. Have I worked at Noma and would it make a good externship site? I staged at Noma for a week, two weeks. It was right before they closed for winter holiday. And I wanted to go to Mugaritz. And that guy, Greg Kuzia Carmel, did a season at Mugaritz. And I asked him to hook, hook me up at Mugaritz if he could because I had I wanted to take a block off of CIA and stage somewhere before I went back to CIA to finish my second year of school which I also highly recommend. It puts you out of touch with your block of people that you did your first year with, but it's really not that bad. It gives you a new pool of people to get to know. But he said that Mugaritz only takes season-long stages, and he could get me in at this place called Noma. And I'll, this was right when they had hit number one, and right when Matt, Matt Orlando was chef de cuisine at Noma, which was an interesting point in that trajectory of that restaurant because from what everybody told me when i went there was that matt orlando took noma which had systems ish and he totally built it out to be this amazing organized organization so that was a really cool time to be there so i'm from what i know noma has a very structured stagiaire plan now and it it requires an application and it takes some time to develop like to get a secured spot do i think that it would be good as an externship site i don't know how you would be treated as an extern there like i don't know if you would get your way up into working a station what i would hope is that you wouldn't get subjected to cleaning celery root and picking crab all day because that's maybe happen as an extern at Noma. I also don't know if it would be paid. I don't know what Renee's policy is. I feel like it's always changing because he's under so much scrutiny with how much he accepts free labor and how the restaurant runs on free labor now. I'd be curious to see if you went through that application process and how that works out for you. What's some advice on how to thrive in a three-star environment if you've never been in that level of kitchen before? Please, please, please stage somewhere first and know that it's going to be right for you. I started, my first stage ever was at La Bernadette, and that was like, I saw it and I knew it and I was like, I want this. I knew from the get that that was where I wanted to go. And I've had conversations with people recently who have worked in Michelin kitchens and they're like, this is not for me. This is not what I think food should be. This is not how I think businesses should be run. This is not... This feels like something that is not conducive to how I like to cook. And so don't set yourself up for four to six months of spending time in that environment that's going to suck the life out of it for you when you can literally trial it by staging somewhere and working for free and giving someone your time to taste to see if it's right for you. It doesn't have to be. Like if you're planning on going to, per se, stage at La Bernadette. If you're trying to go to... Bennu stage at Meadowood. Do you know what I mean? Like, usually if there's a three Michelin star place, there's another one just down the road for the most part. So do everything in your power to make sure that you get to taste. And, and it might not be three stars. It might be you stage at a two star and you're like, okay, this is kind of cool. Like, I actually really like this. Or you might stage at a two star and say, this is bullshit. 
this is stupid and this I don't like this at all. So don't not take that as a freebie. I don't have a good analogy to try to compare this. But yeah, for the most part, I think that it's a no-brainer to kind of get some of that tasted. And I'm happy that me sharing some of my thoughts and going back and making content about this little limited documentation that I do have has provided some value to you folks. So without further ado, I did much better on my timing on this solo podcast episode. If you have articles that you'd like to suggest for me to cover next week, I'm definitely a little bit more caught up now. So I'm super happy to get into it with you folks. I'm doing better at tweeting my thoughts on a, uh, on, on these articles as they come out. So definitely keep me posted on the things that you want me to cover for future episodes. Hashtag the emulsion for sure. So that's easy for me to find them. Follow me on Twitter if you haven't already. Get some color on that like button if you're watching this on YouTube. Share it with a friend. I think that the more that this podcast can get shared, the the better. I think that I'm always excited when cer- certain people come up to me and say that they listen to this podcast because it doesn't have the same amount of engagement that YouTube does. So I don't see comments. I don't. It's not as easy as DMing me when I post something on Instagram. I look at the amount of hours that this podcast gets listened to, and it's always flabbergasting to me to see the amount of time that people allow me to be in their ears. So it's always awesome. So until the next episode, I'm very excited for you to listen to this next interview because it was one of my favorite episodes on episode 105. And yeah, we'll get into it on another solo episode shortly. Roll the outro. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justinkana.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now's normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to, so I'm just gonna get out of the out of the way here. Excuse, excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs>